All right. Well, thank you, Redmond Corral. I uh, used to lead children's worship 100 years ago. And uh, we did that song a lot and had all kinds of motions to it. And so that's why I was standing in the back. I was doing my motions. Like <laughs> no, I will not do that for you. Hey, we're glad you're here. Uh, and Laurie, last concert, I think it probably was your best concert. And so I'm really looking forward to tonight. I hope the rest of you will come out and join us at 7. It'll be a great night. In just a minute, I'm going to be reading from an Old Testament book called Ecclesiastes. If you don't have a clue where that is, find Psalms, then Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes. And I'd love for you to open up a Bible, look at chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, and uh, you'll be ready to read with us in just a moment. It's a music day here, and so I thought that I would do a little music trivia with you. Yes, it's a game. And yes, my wife had a little something to do with it. So um, I'm going to see if you can recognize this tune. And if you do, just hold up your hand. Don't shout it out because we're going to do something with it in just a moment. But uh, guys, go ahead and uh, let me have a little bit. Wow. That was pretty quick. So just curious, who still doesn't know? Those of you that are all over it, you know the year. Just hold up your hand if you know the year. Okay, good. How about the band? Who knows the band? Oh, wow. We've got a music group. we got an old group is what we've got. So I wanted you to be sure to hear that piece. So, how many of you got turn, turn, turn? Of course. And 65, did you get that? Yeah, okay. And the birds? Oh, of course. So, uh, of course, the birds were an American folk, pop, rock kind of group uh, back in the mid-60s that was relatively short-lived, but uh, the period of time that they were productive, they, they put out a lot of stuff that impacted uh, American music for a while. I highlighted this song for you today because uh, the birds uh, didn't write the song, uh, nor did they write the music that went with it. A guy named Pete Seeger had done that a few years prior to them, but they're the ones that created the arrangement of it that became an international smash. And it holds the distinction for being the number one song on the Billboard Hot 100 with the oldest lyrics ever. (laughs) And you know why, right? It's right out of the Bible. It's right out of Ecclesiastes 3 that we're going to read in just a moment. And, of course, most people believe Ecclesiastes was written by the ancient King Solomon 3,000 years ago. So I find it remarkable that God can inspire a writer of the scriptures to pen some words that he knows, because he knows all things throughout all time, uh, will be a smash hit internationally in 65 (laughs) and later find a revival of interest in the Forrest Gump movie and then later be talked about in 2012 in this little gathering. Uh, The key, of course, is what the message of the verses have to say. And so if you have 
uh, your Bible ready to look at that. We're looking at Ecclesiastes. And let's begin with uh, chapter 3, and then we'll move back to chapter 1. So for everything, there's a season. There's a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what's planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent. And a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. And you go, well, that is interesting, made for a good song. I like the bird's arrangement. What's that all about? Time. And what we do with that and whether we understand the opportunity that time is and whether we have any wisdom that gets applied to the use of time that is here and gone. Now, uh, just to refresh us, Solomon, king 3,000 years ago, was more than a king. He was a scientist. Uh, He was intrigued with all matters of literature. Uh, He was a student, lifelong student. And not only was he considered the wisest man that ever lived, he may have arguably, arguably been the richest man who ever lived. And because he presided over Israel in time of total peace. They didn't have any wars. They didn't have any conflicts, any battles. Um, He had the luxury, if you will, with all of his uh, wealth and all of his time and all of his wisdom to plumb the depths of human knowledge and human experience. And the book of Ecclesiastes are some of his conclusions out of all of his research, if you will, of all of his investigation. And uh, he particularly was asking and answering the question, what is the purpose, what is the meaning of life? Big question. What was his conclusion? Flip a page back to chapter 1, here referred to as the preacher. Solomon said, in the words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and it goes round to the north and round and round goes the wind and on in its circuits the wind returns. In other words, everything's pretty meaningless. Now, maybe you want to push back on that a little bit. Maybe you'd want to say, hey, I found some things that are of significance. I found some things that are important. And Solomon would push right back and he would say, you know what, you can live, you can get your education, you can work, you can amass a little bit of wealth or some possessions, and then you're going to die. And you know what, the sun will rise, the sun will set, life will go on as if you were never here. Meaningless. So, 
out of his reflections and out of his uh, considerations, I want us to consider uh, borrowing a line from another American uh, group back in the 60s and 70s. Does anybody really know what time it is? Who knows? Okay. okay. And I don't have a clip for you on that one. But uh, what a great question. In light of what the wisest man who ever lived contended for in the book of Ecclesiastes, written 3,000 years ago, that there's a time for everything, but mark it all down, most of it's going to fall in the category of purposelessness and meaninglessness. It's all going to fall in the category of vanity, emptiness. Then it begs the question, so then what time is it? What, what are we supposed to be making of the time? And I want to suggest to you a few things. The first is this. It's time to recognize the meaninglessness of life. And we just read those verses that after having examined it all, and, and he had the wealth to do that, right? He exposed himself to every kind of circumstance and experience that people can have. In fact, he would particularly like to engage a young person who's, who wants to contend, uh, you just didn't have the right experiences or you just didn't have enough experiences. And he would push back and say, I had all the experiences. I experienced it all. And I was able to reach the conclusion, life is meaningless. It doesn't matter what you accomplish. It doesn't matter what uh, accolades and, and acclamations and awards and uh, attaboys. It doesn't matter what you get. You die. You return to dust. The sun rises and sets. Another day goes on. And so it is. It's time to recognize the truth and the reality of that statement. But notice also, if I can get that to advance, he expounds a little bit uh, later in the chapter, if you still have that open. In verse 9, when he says, because you see, there is nothing new under the sun. And the key phrase there, and really it's the key phrase to understanding the entire book of, of Ecclesiastes, is under the sun. That phrase, under the sun, will be used 29 times across the book of Ecclesiastes. And so his point is this. Everything under the sun, everything in this world, everything that is a part of the temporal reality of earth and life is ultimately meaningless. Under the sun. Everything that's in a state of finitude. Now... He goes on to say in chapter 9, verse 11, here's what you've probably recognized in life that happens under the sun. There's this huge randomness that goes on with it. There's this huge inequality and injustice that goes on with life under the sun. Uh, chapter 9, verse 11, he says, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise. Time and chance happen to them all. In other words, here's what I observed. The fastest person doesn't always win the race. The smartest person doesn't always get to the first of the front of the class. The person that works the hardest doesn't always reap the best reward. Sometimes people that do nothing 
have huge windfalls. How fair is that? Sometimes people who have been so diligent have the most random, awful things happen to them. And some who have been so careless seem to just glide along easily and without cares. He goes, that's that's life under the sun. That's life in this temporal, broken world. It doesn't make sense. It's meaningless. It's vanity. It's emptiness. And he would say, it's time for us to get it. Just how meaningless life under the sun can be. In the second place, he would say it's also time to recognize there's more than this life. And that's the good news. This, this life is broken. This life is busted. This life is on a bad trajectory and bad course. But this life isn't all there is. And in fact, here's what Solomon discovered that he shared with all of us. And if you didn't know this verse was in the Bible, you might want to take your pen and underline this in your Bible or write it on your program to take home and look at later. But Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us a hugely important piece of reality, and that's this. God, who created us, created us in such a way that he put eternity into our heart. In other words, he created innately with us this hunger and this desire for something more than this world. For something more than what's under the sun. Now, every now and then, uh, an atheistic or an agnostic kind of writer comes along and he pens some uh, provocative thoughts and it becomes a bestseller and everybody oohs and ahs and he gets on the cover of a magazine and it's a part of the national conversation. That's, you know, that's great. Engage the conversation. But after a while, even those that are thoroughly taken with the conversation or thoroughly taken with the thesis of whatever he was presenting find themselves moving back toward a point of, isn't there something more? Isn't there something? Couldn't there be something beyond the here, the now, what's under the sun? And friend, when you have that kind of urge or yearning within you, that's a God thing. God put that there in your heart. Because He didn't create you to be in this world, under the sun, for all time and eternity. He just did that for time. At some point, time expires and we're into eternity. And he's put it in your heart to long and to yearn for that. In the third place, Solomon would say, it's also time to fear God and keep his commandments. You read through the entirety of Ecclesiastes and he has all these little uh, insights, all these little revelations that have come from his investigation and, and all this little commentary about this, that, and the other. But when you get to the second last verse of the last chapter, he says, okay, but here's the conclusion. I've experienced it all. I've tried it all. And it all comes down to you. You better fear God. You better know how great, how awesome, how fearsome how powerful, how sovereign He is, and live in a holy reverence, live in a holy respect of that, and align your life with Him, obeying His commandments. And it begs the question, as the song, does anybody really know what time it is? It is time to fear God and follow Him. Obey Him. 
You say, what are you talking about specifically? Everything. Obey God when it comes to what He says about morality. Obey God when He says what uh, matters with respect to integrity, relationships, sexuality, purpose, meaning, mission, injustice, evil. To be obedient to Him in light of everything He says about every topic under the sun. And then Solomon would say, in the fourth place, it's also time to recognize this life has accountability. The very last verse of the entire book of Ecclesiastes says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. It all matters, friends. It all counts. It all is examined. It's all known. We're accountable for it all. And Solomon especially tries to get that through to those that are of a younger age. He said back in chapter 11, verse 9, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So, okay, sow the wild oats if you want to, play whatever games you want to, try and experiment with whatever you want to, just know there is a day of accountability that comes. And the wise live in light of that. Now, fast forwarding, getting out of the Old Testament into the New, God continues to reveal and to disclose Himself and His ways and does that supremely in the life of Jesus Christ. And supremely, He shows us what He is like and what He expects and what life can be about in the person of Jesus Christ. And the ultimate command is that we would believe on Jesus and surrender our lives to Jesus and follow Jesus all the days of our lives. And so the question is, do we know what time it is? Do we know the ultimate meaninglessness of life under the sun? Do we know that there is more than this life? You have that stirring in your heart. Do we know it's time to fear Him and follow Him and obey Him, including His supreme revelation in Jesus, and that we're accountable for it all? If you've gotten all that, then uh, the Bible would say, congratulations, you are in Life 101. That's the elementary basics of what God would want you to know. And you get all the way near the end of the New Testament. And the Scriptures tell us in Hebrews 6.1, So let us leave elementary doctrine. Everything we just covered are the basics. That's the foundation. That's like grade school. And let us go on to maturity. What time is it? It is time to mature and to grow into deeper faith and commitment. That's what time it is. Because with every click of that clock, statistically, a soul goes into eternity. And one of those ticks on the clock is for me. One of those ticks on the clock is for you. The question is, 
have we known what time was about? Did we do what we were supposed to do in time? Because then we're out of time and we're in eternity. Now, this past week was kind of noteworthy in a couple of ways. Uh, any of you familiar with Ray Bradbury? Familiar with that name? So he's a rather prolific author. Uh, penned probably close to 50 books and uh, hundreds of short stories. Uh, Bradbury died this past uh, week on the 5th of June, 91 years of age. And um, his story comes out of the Depression. So his family was uh, poor, very uh, difficult time, didn't have the money for him to get an education. And so he was not exposed to institutions of higher learning, but he was a, a voracious reader. He spent hours and hours every week in the public library reading everything he could get his hands on. And uh, it so stirred in him a desire to write, he, he began writing at a very early age, uh, short stories and then novellas and then, you know, full-blown books. And uh, probably best known for his bestseller in 1953, goes way back, entitled Fahrenheit 451. Anybody read that, by the way? A few of you did, yeah. So... Uh, as you are aware from the title, Fahrenheit 451 is the temperature at which paper that's in a book can self-combust and burn. And, of course, he was talking about the burning of uh, books and that we were, it's kind of prophetically uh, pointing to a time where we'd be so taken with television, we'd be so taken with media, etc., that we wouldn't uh, be readers. We wouldn't be uh, conversant and aware of the vastness of literature. And we would uh, have everything reduced down to little factoids that were devoid of context. This is 1953. Sounds a whole lot like 2012. Uh, but it was his definitive work. It was his most famous piece. And uh, because he passed away this week, then it was known. What he wants on his tombstone is... The author of Fahrenheit 451. That's what he wants on his tombstone. How do you encapsulate a life? And here, arguably, is a brilliant life. A man of, of vastness and of breadth. Well-read, well-written. Let me just encapsulate. Let me bring it all down to... I wrote a book in 1953. And it was a dystopia kind of look at society. Honestly, friends, I find that tragic. And that's not an overstatement on my part. I affirm with everyone else that wants to sing his praises about his accomplishments, his productivity, uh, his creativity. But if life, when it's all said and done, and you're out of time and you're going into eternity comes down to, I wrote a book in 53. I think that's kind of tragic. He was a lifelong agnostic, which I find kind of tragic. And of course, the, by definition, agnosticism simply means I don't know. And I don't have a problem with that. There's a lot that I don't know. But the question is, are you trying to find out? 
And so somebody like Christopher Hitchens that died not too long ago, I have way more respect for him because he moved from agnosticism to atheism. He found out for himself. I think he was wrong. But he drew a conclusion. And somebody of Bradbury's breadth and vastness and capability, man, draw a conclusion. Don't sail 91 years of this life and not know, not figure that out for yourself. Now, conversely, this past week, on the 8th of June, was the 40th anniversary of this photograph that you're looking at right here. How many of you have seen that before? It's one of the most famous photographs 40 years ago around the Vietnam War. A, Vietnam, a Vietnamese village had just been bombed with napalm. And the, the villagers, including the, the children that you see fleeing that village, had just been splattered with boiling hot napalm and they're running for their lives. And a little girl who was simply known out of the picture as Napalm Girl uh, was crying out in Vietnamese, too hot, too hot, too hot. And it had literally melted the clothes off of her body and given her third degree burns all over her body. The Associated Press photographer, a guy named Nick Oot, who took the picture. It was a Pulitzer Prize winning picture that arguably helped bring the Vietnam War to a close because people could see visually the atrocities of the war. He uh, snapped the picture, then put his camera down, went and grabbed the girl and helped her get some medical attention where she endured the first of 17 surgeries to address those third degree burns that were all over her body. For years, nobody knew her name. She was just the napalm girl. Somewhere along the way in her teens, the uh, Vietnamese government discovered who she was, and they took her out of school, and they began to parade her to a variety of meetings all over the place as a propaganda piece to um, carry out an anti-war message. Which was heartbreaking to her because she loved school. And she was now being deprived of her education. And uh, like Bradbury, she was a voracious reader. She would read everything she could get her hands on. Every time she could go into a library, she would spend you know hours and hours and hours in a library exposing herself to all kinds of literature. And along the way, one of the things she read was the Bible. And so intrigued by that. That later in her adult life, when she was on some propaganda tour, she escaped from her handlers, defected to Canada, and there began to attend a church to continue her investigation of what she had been reading in the Bible, and began to draw some conclusions that led her to faith in Jesus Christ and to become a follower of Christ. Kim Fook, P-H-U-C is a follower of Jesus today and not only an official representative of the United Nations speaking in a variety of peacemaking efforts, but a very outspoken Christian who speaks all across not only this country, but many countries about the supreme peacemaker, Jesus. The transforming work of God in her life has been so far-reaching that she has not only been able to kind of in a blanket way forgive all the people that injured her and killed so many of her loved ones, 
But on one occasion, she's speaking in a venue. She's sharing her story and her testimony about coming to Christ. And the guy that piloted the plane who bombed her village and dumped the napalm on her and others was there. And when the service was over, he made his way down to her, introduced himself and confessed, I'm the guy that bombed your village. And he asked her forgiveness, confessing his great sorrow. And she was able like that to forgive him because she had already worked out all the forgiveness issues early on in her faith. But here in a very powerful, poignant moment, she's able to look in the face, look in the eyes of the man that had brought so much pain to her life. I say, I forgive you. And in the name of Christ, I love you. It's a noteworthy week, the passing of Bradbury, the anniversary of this photo. But friend, I'm going to tell you, for my life, my one and only life that I only get one shot to spend, I'm going Kim's direction. I, I appreciate the journey she's been on, the investigation that she did, the conclusions that she reached. I think she's got it right. She knows what time it is. And she is living time well and wisely and when time is out and we're reading her obituary and she's in eternity friend it's going to be a sweet eternity there's a time for all kinds of things Solomon pointed out to us this gathering has been a divine appointment God has moved in a way that has brought us here today in this time. It's a time for a decision. What do you do with all you've just heard? Does that make any kind of sense? Does that stir any kind of investigative gene in your body? Does it kind of put in a yellow highlight that peace that God's placed in our hearts that yearns for eternity? Well, here's what I would encourage and suggest. The first would be this. Will you recognize the time and therefore fear God and obey His commands? Yeah, I don't like that word, fear. Well, there are other words that the Bible says we can have about God, too, because God is full of mercy. God is full of grace. God has invited us to draw near. God will treat us often like a father. Uh, God is, uh, is like a great counselor who gives us uh, direction and guidance and wisdom. He, he, there's all these other metaphors, but the, the, the dominating metaphor that the Bible doesn't want us to forget is that he is God. He is in charge. He is the ultimate. And he is the one to whom we must always defer. Will you understand the time and get that? Will you recognize the time and commit to grow and mature? If you've settled the first issue, I believe there's a God. I believe He deserves my respect and my, my worship and my fellowship and, and, and so on. Like, well, that's 101, friends. Will you grow 
Will you mature? Will you become a part of a community of faith where you can be nurtured in that faith? Strengthened and encouraged in that faith where you can get some answers to your questions? And will you live with eternity dominating your heart? Yeah, we have to be present. We have to be here and now. We have to make the most of this day. But we must always do so in a context of this is the temporal. There is an eternity that my life has been designed for. And I want to pray for you about that. Let's pray. God, thank you for everyone in the house today or those listening to this later. It's been a divine appointment for us to be able to consider such matters. And we trust that even this moment, your Holy Spirit is stirring in our hearts, stirring in our thoughts, and encouraging our our lives to reach conclusions about faith. God, would you help us? Would you empower, strengthen, encourage, illuminate in ways that we can respond to you with a whole heart? In Jesus' name, amen.